grace, there's a lot to talk about. We want to extend it to others. We sing about it, talk about it, practice it. We pray for it. We do all kinds of things. We know that we need it. We try to extend it to others, but not like we think like do because if we give them too much grace, they might take advantage of us. We're afraid of that. So we limit the grace that we extend to others. And when we're driving down the road, we exact judgment, justice. We want justice, right? Unless we're trying to merge into traffic, they won't let us in. And then we say, oh, come on, show us a little grace, right? Reminded of the little old lady who went into the photographer in the studio, and she was what we call homely. You know, she had aged well. She says to the photographer, make sure that when you take my picture that you do me justice. He said, lady, you don't need justice. You need grace. You need mercy. He took her picture and cleaned it up and it looked pretty good. We all need grace, do we not? Yeah, we all plead for justice when we've been wrong, but we all want grace. We want people to extend grace to us. We extend it to others. We even name our kids grace. Some of us have a, a name grace and it, it's a... In the ancient Greek, it's the word charis, and we, that's a common baby name even today. We want to extend it to others. We, we, we say it over a meal. We say grace over a meal. And uh, I think that, by, by the way, just a little pet peeve of mine, how do you know you're thankful if you haven't tasted it yet? <laughs> right? I think you should, like, taste it and then go, oh, yeah, we are really grateful for this. This is a five, Mom. On the one to, on the one to five, this is a five. Uh, other meals, this is a three. You know, this is like, thank you, Lord. Maybe next day we could do better than this. <laughs> thank you. We want to extend grace to other people, don't we? I want to go through uh, with you over the next number of weeks what it is and just how amazing this grace is. Now, if you have a Bible or New Testament, go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you're highly energetic, also hold your place in John 1. We'll be there as well. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing what this grace is. We have, we, we have a grace that comes from God, and we, we love that, but no other faith in the world has this. No other faith in the world has a God who reigns in heaven and who extends grace to his created beings and shows favor to them in kindness and gentleness. It really is amazing. So why even do a series like this? Why even do this? I was thinking about that um, over the last number of weeks. And by the way, this series we're about to do, we're thinking it's going to go six weeks, but it could go six months. It really could. Uh, This thing is so deep, so wide, I've been hesitant to ever do a series on it because it seems to pervade every corner of my faith and every corner of my hope and every corner of my love as it relates to the Lord. It just, this grace piece is so big, it's hard to preach, hard to communicate, because it's, it's just big to get your arms around. And I think about that in light of the fact that, that how many people do I know who've had saving grace, maybe they trust Jesus, but they've never had sustaining grace. So they never feel like God is fully satisfied. They always live with a sense of not being worthy before the Lord. And then I think about people who live in constant shame, people who live in, in under the burden, the weight of condemnation, 
or in the hostility of internal fear or of worry. Failure is always at the door. Or uh, Christians who live what I call performance Christianity. By that, what I mean is, is they always believe that Jesus will love me more if I do A, B, and C. Or it, and the fact is, Jesus can't love you more. He can't. He gave his life. He gave his blood. There's no way he can love you more than he has already. But to somehow in the midst of this, we've, had, we've done this, either a small group or a family or a church or particularly a pastor has taught either intentionally or unintentionally, somehow God smiles and smiles especially big when we do A, B, and C or whatever that happens to be. And the fact of the matter is he loves you and he cannot love you anymore and he will not love you any less. And it is extremely grace-based. And I see that being an issue, not only because of the shame and the condemnation, but I see it because of, of this performance kind of Christianity. I see it in perfection-driven people who are never quite satisfied, hard on other people because they're really hard on themselves, or they're hard on other people so people back away and won't be hard on them. It's a first-strike kind of defense mechanism. How many people in the world do you know that have a father wound, have something from their heritage, from their line, or who live in constant depression, who struggle with self-image issues, who can't see up high enough to see the bottom? That's how low they really are. Uh, others uh, know that they're saved by grace, but now they feel the need to keep pedaling hard to win the favor of God as if there's something mystical. There's a, there's a carrot at the end of this stick out there. If I could just get a hold of it, whatever that would be, somehow they believe they're never quite good enough, and so God is never fully satisfied, which is an unbiblical concept. He is satisfied, but we somehow implied that he is not, that we have to do something else. I see this more and more in the church today, that we are saved by grace, but then we have to, that somehow we rear the ugly head that, that of masked kinds of symptoms. People always tell you how good they are. And that self-promotion, and, you know, you always have to tell people, well, you know, I, I, I got it going. Me and Jesus are tight. You always have to be announcing that. You always have to be putting that out there. You always have to be telling them what they're doing. And their promotion, self-promotion, because if no one else is doing it for me, no one else will, because I have to do it my own. And that kind of thing is, is diametrically opposed to the fact that there's a God in heaven who loves you more than you could imagine. And I've told you this before. If you had a refrigerator in heaven, your picture would be on it. You know, it's not original. None of the sermon is. It's, that came from Max Lucado. But wish I'd thought of that first, don't you? See, I, I see performance Christianity as being a huge deal, and self-promotion kind of s squeezes out of that. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we'll begin, but I, I want to just... Uh, remind you from James, James chapter 4. He gives, he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud. Does, you don't want to be part of the proud scene, the arrogant scene. Why? Because God opposes it. It's not that, it's not that he, oh, he doesn't like it, doesn't care for it, he's distant. To, no, no, he opposes it. So if pride is your deal, just know you're in, you're in direct opposition to God. Dangerous place to be. He says he opposes the proud, James 4, 6, but he shows favor to the humble. The word grace shows up twice in that verse, although you only see it once in our version. It's the Greek word charis, and in it, early in the verse, he gives, he gives us more grace. There it is, charis, grace. And then later, 
And he shows favor. That's the word charis again. He shows grace to the humble. And that's really the definition, if you were to define it. It is favor from God and the favor of God. Uh, uh, let me begin t today just by uh, uh, giving you a definition of grace. We're going to do a flyover of the scriptural uh, portions of, of grace, and then at the end we'll, we'll drill down on a couple of verses. The definition of grace goes like this. It is, by definition, theologians tell us it's unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. An expanded definition might read that it's unmerited, unearned, and undeserved, and it would be the kindness and favor of God, including Titus 3 and, and Ephesians 2. It's the favor of God, but it's the kindness of God. It's this tenderheartedness that leads us to this point of grace. If it weren't for God being tenderhearted, there would be no favor. There'd be no grace. If Lewis Berry Chafer, in his book on grace, he defines it in one word, and he says, if I had to boil it down to one word, grace is, is defined with the word favor. Favor. By the way, let me just recommend a couple of books to you. One is Lewis Berry Chafer's book entitled Grace. Uh, Chafer was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Dallas, Texas. This was written in 1910s or 20s, something like that. It's a 100-year-old book. This is a reprint, obviously. Chafer's in heaven. so already passed away. This is a wonderful theological piece called Grace. And uh, another book that would be well worth your reading, it's a great coffee table book just to read bits of all the time. It's called The Grace Awakening by Charles Swindoll. You can catch this on the radio, but reading the book, you can underline This is a great topical piece. And, I, and I'll be drawing from this during the series, but mostly I'll be drawing my conclusions from the scriptures. Hope you know that. And so do they draw their conclusions from the scriptures. When Chafer defines grace, he defines it with one word, favor. Now, here's the problem with that. When we say favor, many of us go, oh, yeah, I've heard of that before. A person says, oh, yeah, I was driving into D.C. I got the favor. Got the favor of the Lord. I got every light green. Well, that's not the favor of the Lord. That's luck. And you may be lying or speeding. Besides that, there's no way you could go through those lights at Brandywine. Can I get an amen? There's no way you can get through those lights. My gosh, I don't even believe in purgatory, but I think it's just north of us. <laughs> okay, back on the notes. That is not the kind of favor we're talking about. Because Christians get sick, Christians get cancer, Christians get fired from their jobs, Christians can get divorced. I mean, it, things that happen to them that they don't want to have happen, right? And they still are favored of the Lord. They still have this unmerited kind of favor of the Lord. I, I really like uh, Tony Evans. Leave it to Evans to give us the, the, the best descriptive definition of favor, of, of grace. It is the inexhaustible supply of God's goodness whereby he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. It is the inexhaustible supply. In other words, it just never runs out. It is amazing. What's so amazing about grace? Number one, that it never runs out. It is just, it, it's amazing that way. And that it is goodness, whereby he does for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. There'd be no boasting in heaven. No one can say in heaven, oh yeah, he picked me first. No, it just is not going to happen. Today I want us to do a flyover of the word grace and its biblical uh, context. And throughout, just see it throughout the Bible. Sometimes it's good to fly over and by that you look at every occurrence in the scriptures. That's how... 
scholars actually define a term is look at how it does it appear throughout the history pages of scripture and how is it used and then you can write a definition of it so I want to do a flyover and I want us to get just an overview and then when we're done with that we're going to settle on two verses and a little bit of an application just to get us into the series and we'll be talking more about this Lord willing in the days ahead the term grace appears 120 times in the Bible you're saying we're going to look at all 120 today no we are not maybe a half a dozen so, but if you, if you also take not only the, the Greek word charis, but take the implied terms like favor and, and other terms that relate to grace, the kindness of God, sometimes it translates differently. Scholars tell us the, the term appears about 170 times in the scriptures. I'm reminded of the prophet Isaiah, who put it this way, Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenheartedness, to proclaim the favor, to proclaim the freedom of the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's our word favor is the word grace. Other translations. This prophet is saying, God is, even in the Old Testament, extending grace towards us. The fact that he doesn't flood the world and leave it flooded is an extension of his grace. The fact that he doesn't just totally abandon us is an extension of his grace. And Jesus, by the way, when Jesus will begin his public ministry, Jesus is born in a little town of Bethlehem and away in a manger and he grows up. And what's the first thing that we, when he, when he grows up and he starts his public ministry, guess what he quotes? Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm here for the brokenhearted, those who are hurting, and I'm here to proclaim the favor of the Lord. In fact, He'll say, I am the embodiment of that favor. I am the grace of God, as we're going to learn from John 1. Proverbs will tell us, even in a proverbial kind of a way, one who uh, loves with a pure heart and who speaks with grace will have a king for a friend. In other words, if you're gracious with your mouth, there's a chance you could get ahead in life. If you could mark your words and be careful with what you say, you might make it in life, the, the Proverbs are telling us. So grace is throughout the Old Testament, although we don't really, we don't really mark it for that. What, what, what we really mark is when Jesus Christ came to earth, John chapter 1. The word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us. He is seen of the glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Get that. Jesus comes from the Father. He is full of, is full of get that, grace and truth. Now we really focus on the truth of Jesus. This series, we're going to focus on the grace, who he is. Because he's just as full with grace as he is with truth. And because he is the truth, he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is how you get to heaven, is be hearing and, and following the truth. But understand this, not only is he the truth, he is graciously taking you there. So out of his fullness, the passage goes on to say, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So it's like he's loading grace upon top of grace. For through the law of Moses, we get the law, but we get grace and truth through Jesus. You have gotten the truth before without grace, right? You've been in a store. Could you tell me where your uh, uh, soap, yeah, I want the liquid. It's down on aisle seven. Down. Do you know what a seven looks like? It's like an L upside down. Yeah, I suppose you don't know what an L is either. They gave you the information. It was true. And it is kind of an L upside down. 
Were they gracious? No. Who is Jesus? Now is he the truth? He's also graciously taking you. You see the difference? In that store, the gracious truth teller would say, you know what? Let me take you there. In fact, I'm headed that way myself. I'll just take you by. We have liquid soaps here and we have bar soap over there. And you want powdered soap, it's around the corner. And if you don't like those, we have an industrial soap over in the automotive department. Wow. That's grace, is it not? Yeah. So in the Old Testament, if you're taking notes, here we go. Yeah, the Old Testament. And this gave to us the law. Okay? And that was the law that we could never, ever let you see here, Carlos. Okay, you're good. Just you and me. Okay. Bring it back around. This is the law. <clears throat> it always tells us how many commandments were there? Ten. Could we keep them? No. So what did we do? We wrote 433 more. Did that help? No, not really. It just made us Pharisees. It made us obedient to certain other laws because we couldn't keep the ten big ones. And all that did was tell us you cannot measure up. You cannot make it. You could never be perfect. And so they were always sacrificing lambs, always killing uh, animals, sacrificing them to the Lord for burnt offerings. And, and by doing that, it sustained them and it forgave sin for a season. But they had to keep doing it. And then Jesus came. And the last prophet for Jesus was a guy by the name of John. And you know what he said? He said, behold, when he looked at Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, that guy is going to be the final Lamb. He's it. So when Jesus comes, I'll show that through a cross. When Jesus comes, now we have grace and truth showing up, and then throughout the whole New Testament, after Christ, these guys are looking forward to this salvation that they don't have because they can't measure up. And then once the Savior has come, they always look backwards and say, thank you to the Lord for this great, great Savior. So he is full of grace and truth. At the end, verse 17, for the law is given for Moses. He gives us the law, but it doesn't make us right with God. It just shows us that we're guilty. This is the one and only who can forgive. And these guys look back now at the Savior and go, yes, he is the one who gives us not only truth, but gives us in the process, he is kind about it, and he gives us grace while giving us truth. And he is 100% of both. And while we talk about truth a lot, it's time now to talk about the grace of God. The truth deals with, with the sin-sick soul state of our own hearts. And the grace tenderly holds on to our souls while we're in the process of coming to the Lord. Now, as soon as Jesus dies upon the cross and then is risen, he goes back to heaven. And the very next book, you have four Gospels, right? Tell me out loud. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four stories of the life of Jesus. And each guy is telling a different perspective. You, it happens at your home all the time. Four people in the family room watching the TV show. 
All four of you enjoy the same show. All four of you have four different perspectives. I thought he was the, no, I thought, well, I thought he did it. I thought that. You have different impressions because you all have different perspectives. What we have here is we have a Jew's Jew who's, who's turned on the Jewish people. That's Matthew. We have Mark who's very Roman in his perspective. We have Luke who's telling the story. He's a physician. The fact that we were even able to read his manuscript is amazing. If you're a medical doctor, I apologize for what I just said. His writing of the gospel is the longest. Why? Because he's explaining the physical sides of what it was like. It was in the little town of Bethlehem. There was this baby to be born. And he goes into great extents here. And he writes the longest, the most physical description of Jesus of the four because he's a physician. And, so, and then John is the theologian. We're never sure what he means by what he says. Because he's just out there. He's, just, he's thinking in bigger terms. And, and so you have four perspectives. And what that tells you and me is this. This Savior is for all kinds of people, all kinds of thinkers, all kinds of perspectives. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter your nationality, because these guys are different. It doesn't matter your educational level or, or your learning style. Anything doesn't matter. Four perspectives. It's just telling you this is the Savior for all the world. Now, here's the crazy, amazing part of this. Jesus dies, buried, is buried, and rose, rose again, and as he rises again, a new book starts. It's the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, let me just start with a new page here. The book of Acts, now, it's really a book of history. It is the first generation of believers. And so it actually dates itself. It's happening in time. And while that book is happening in time, it's missionary travels, and while they're going to different cities, they're writing different books. And when they're writing, help me with this, Romans, right? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, please tell me you know that. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Okay, you have the idea, right? So they're writing these, and here's what's happening. When they're visiting Thessalonica, oh my gosh, this fits. They're in Corinth. They know where Corinth is. You know where that is? And so this is all happening inside the history, and Acts is really a history book, telling us about the first generation of Christians. Here's the, the real beauty. Acts chapter, chapter 11. When he arrived and saw the grace, what the grace of God had done. Get this. This is the grace of God. It's not the church. It's not people. It is the grace of God, which is what? It is Jesus being embodied in these people who's changing their hearts. He's seen just how good God has been to them. I hope, I hope you get that. When they see what the grace of God has done, yeah, understand this. Anything good in your life, mark this down, is only by the grace of God. Chapter 20, verse 32. It happens again. And now I commit to you, to God, and to the word of his grace. I'm committing you to the Lord, but I'm also committing you to the word of his grace. What is that? That's the embodiment of Christ. It's the faith of the believers. Now they're called little Christ Christians. And that word of his grace is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, all the holy people. Okay? The word of his grace it's his grace that will build you up. It's his grace that will give you an inheritance. 
It's his grace. You see, they knew the Old Testament. They knew they could go back to this. Here's Acts starting right here. They could go back to this. They could never keep sacrificing enough lambs to make sense. It just would not work. They knew, I do this now. Next week, I'm going to have to do it again. Next year, I'm going to have to do it again. Next year, I'm going to have to do it again. Or I can go to this one lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what John says when he meets Jesus. Behold the lamb of God who can take it all away. And so in light of that, they realize it's a new day. This is the age, really, of grace. Now, here's the beautiful part of this. Keep reading. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. We are all justified freely by his grace through redemption that, that came through Jesus Christ. How did that redemption come? How did the buyout come? It came through Jesus Christ. We are justified freely. And why? Because of his grace. It's because of his good hand, his favor towards us. That's what brought us out of sin and into the place of freedom. It, even that place of freedom is a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace, that's the unmerited favor of God, that you are saved. It is totally the unmerited favor of God. That's the position you're in. Again, Colossians chapter 4. It's going to affect your whole lifestyle. Let your conversation, that's your lifestyle, always be full of grace. Why? Because you're the people who've experienced grace. Let your conversation be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer people. In other words, it's going to give you wisdom as you know how to talk. He teaches us not only to receive grace and then have sustaining grace, but to be gracious people. You get this? To be gracious people. You say, but if I'm gracious, people will cut me off. They'll snip at me. They'll take advantage of me. And you know what? And when that happens, that singes their conscience, but they realize you respond differently. Why? Because you have been graced. You have been visited by the gracious one who leads you to a lifestyle that's not just full of truth, but full of grace. Now, when those gospels are completed, now Acts is living this out. Here, this is the crazy, wonderful part, and the only way you're going to get this is to read through the New Testament. When Paul writes to the church in Rome, within the first 10 verses, what's he going to say? He's going to say, grace to you. It's a grace message. You know when he concludes it? Write the last chapter. You know what he says? I leave you with the, the grace of God. Corinthians opens within the first chapter. Grace again. When he closes it, may the grace of God be with you. Second Corinthians, grace again. He closes Second Corinthians, may the grace of God go with you. The book of Galatians, which is a huge grace book. It's only by the grace of God that we live. Grace be with you. It opens Ephesians, grace. Philippians, grace. Colossians, grace. Grace, it closes. First Thessalonians, the whole Pauline epistles, everything that Paul wrote is immersed in grace. And here's what I find interesting about it. It's almost like there's linkages. As Romans signs off in grace, Corinthians signs on. As 1 Corinthians signs off in grace, 2 Corinthians signs on. And they're written at different times in different places. Now, historically, you know, these are just gathered books, you know that. But even so, jumble them any way you wish, and guess what? Whenever he signs off, he says, the Lord, may he be gracious to you. And when he opens the next one, guess what he says? I greet you in the gracious name of God our Father in heaven who gave to us his son. So he can't get away from it. Neither can you. Neither can I. This linkage I, I, is just huge. It just links all of the uh, Pauline epistles together but teaches us that we are, 
We are people of the grace. We are people who, if you were to cut us, ought to bleed grace. You break it down to, to just knowing this is only about, a, it is an amazing grace of God, and nothing shy of that could explain it. Well, I want to I leave you with just a couple of verses. We're, you're in Ephesians 2. Um, let's read verses 8 and 9 together. And, uh, for it is by grace that you have been saved. Why don't you read it out loud with me? Would you read it out loud with gusto? If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen. Together? For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Those are two verses well worth. I rarely say that you should do anything. These are two verses you should memorize because you need to carry them with you. For it is by grace you've been saved. It is only through faith. That's the only way you can get into heaven. It's that way. It's the only way you're going to be forgiven is by the grace of God. And it is a free gift so no one can boast. Four observations. It is, going back to our earlier definition, it is unmerited, it is undeserved, it is unearned, it is favor. It is total grace. Number one, it is unmerited. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. Nobody earns a spot on the roster to heaven. Nobody. Nobody negotiates their contract. There's no pride of ownership in heaven. We are all humbled and delighted. We're all in awe. I hope you get this. Because there is nothing about grace that is merit-based. Nothing. It is totally unmerited. You know, the day that you come to Christ, it, you, are, you know it's unmerited. You know you have the favor of the Lord that day. For me, I was like six years old. It was the end of vacation Bible school, and they presented the gospel, and I knew I needed to trust Jesus and never had. I was too scared. I sat in my little chair in VBS, you know, white-knuckled. Did you raise your hand if you want to trust? I'd raise my hand. I, I couldn't do anything else. And I, that was Friday. And I, you know, I, I got to Sunday and went to a teacher, a Sunday school teacher at the end of class and said, I raised my hand. She had no idea what that meant. I raised my hand. You need to go potty? What's the deal? Like, no. I raised my hand. It's a Friday at VBS. She said, do you, do you want to accept Jesus as your Savior? I said, I do. She helped me to trust Christ that day. It was a wonderful thing for me. You know what the feeling was for me? It was relief. Relief that I didn't die on Saturday. Because <laughs> I raised my hand, but oh, I don't know what to do next. For you, it may be joy. For you, it may be, oh, done. Or for you, my, oh, the struggle. Or the conscience. Or the guilt gone. Or the freedom. Or the heaven. I don't know what your emotion is. I just know this. It is all unmerited. We, when we first get saved, we know it's unmerited. We arrive in heaven. If you were to get saved and die that day and land in heaven, you'd be going, Yahoo! And they say, How'd you get here? I trusted Jesus. There's no other way to get in because you know it's unmerited. But somewhere along the line, we think that we get educated or we learn something new. And so we think we, we just become all that. It's the only way I know how to explain it. We, we prove somehow to God that we're a good deal. He picked us in the third round of the draft, and we're a point guard, and we can do this. And we think that we're something. And, 
And that kind of arrogant thinking, he remember this from James? He opposes the proud. We just have to extinguish that flame that's within us. Because even on our best day, our righteousness, the prophet said, is like a filthy rag. And if I gave you the ancient Hebrew to that, it, you'd, we'd need barf bags at the chairs. It is nasty what the, what the prophet was saying. It was gosh awful. We don't deserve good. Even on our best day, it is totally unmerited grace. Second thing, it is undeserved. It is not of ourselves. Ancient word here is the word charis. That's the Greek term, C-H-A-R-I-S. And we get, we get the word charis and charis, are names of, of children. And it had a, actually the word charis had a, a benevolent meaning in, in Roman society when they used it in the Bible. And the meaning meant that there was a benevolent person who was giving to an inferior. So a superior is giving to an inferior person. In other words, it's not deserving. So it could be someone at a store saying, I want to buy a bag of groceries. It could be that simple. Or I want to buy a coat for everybody. And that benevolent giver would, would then be part of this process. And there were always three parts to this. There's this patron, and this is the person who's providing the goods. The patron would be like the store owner. And I hate to think of terms of salvation this way, but this is the Roman society. This is the way they use that term, charis. They always had a patron. And then you had what was called the the client, and the client was the person who received the good, who was the needy person. So they might receive the bag of groceries or the coat, whatever it might be. So you have the patron who has the goods, you have the client who needs the goods, but you had another person who was in between. And that person in between, get this, is called the broker. Now the broker it, uh, would go into the community, he would see the need and then he would actually pay for the benefit. So he bought the groceries or the coat or whatever it was that was needed. And, the, and then it's that broker then would give it to the client. Does that sound anything close to what we experience in salvation? There's a father in heaven who has it. And there is a son who acts as broker. And he pays for our sin to give us forgiveness and a home in heaven. That broker for you and me is Jesus. And the grace we receive is totally undeserved. It is a gift of God. Nobody can boast. Someone paid your way to heaven. You could never pay your way back. So get over that. It is totally undeserved. Number three, it is unearned. It is the gift of God. If it's free, then it's not earned. And if you earn it, then it's not going to be free. It's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. You did nothing to deserve it. It's really, it's a gift. Incidentally, the grace that saves you is the same grace that sustains you. You did nothing to earn it. You do nothing to deserve it. You do nothing to keep it either. It is the grace of God. Now you are, live unto good works, that's for sure, but that isn't to maintain grace. That isn't to maintain a salvation. You do that as an act of worship to the Lord. How many of you in the room are parents? How many of you know what a parent is? You've seen a parent? You had a parent once? Something in your life? Okay. Parent, it's, it's a good thing, parents. It's not a trick question. 
Honest, it's not. I'm a parent. Juan and I are married. We have five great kids. And, we only, and people will ask after church too, so how many do you have all together? Five. We have five great kids. And it's not like we have seven. We have five great kids. And it's, well, I thought, you, well, two are kind of marginal. But no, no, we have five children total. All of them are great in different ways. In different ways. We celebrate birthdays at our house. And uh, we, we enjoy, they're kind of like a national holiday for us. It's the way we do birthdays. And so on your birthday, you get to pick dinner. That's what you do at our house. And as long as it includes a couple, three different food groups, we're good with that. It can't be candy, candy corn, candy canes, something else. It can't be that. But if, if, if you have a balanced meal, we'll take that. We'll, we'll make your meal. But then we always do a cake. One of our kids likes pie. And sometimes we do a fruit pizza. Do you know what a fruit pizza is? Oh, my gosh. It's where health and unhealth comes together. <laughs> All in one. Uh, but anyway, we'll, we'll do something. Uh, and then we sing and blow out some candles. We always have a gift or two. And it, that's fun, you know, but we, sometimes we'll play a yard game, do something together. Uh, and, uh, well, when it's my birthday, when the kids are little, kids are grown now, but it's not much different, quite frankly. But when they were little, I'd get a gift from them, and they'd, they'd come on, and I'd be in my chair, and they'd present the gift. And, but, you know, I know the reality of this. They're buying me, they're getting a gift, but... It came out of my account. <laughs> you know this, right? I paid for this gift. Oh, honey, this is wonderful. Every dad knows this. Every mom knows this. Oh, that's wonderful. This, this cost, I don't know how, you know, and, that, and that's what guys are thinking. I, I'll be honest with you, this is what guys are thinking. Like, how much is this setting me back, dude? <laughs> you know, because they, they bought, you know, sometimes any dad got in a tie that like lights up and has all kinds of things. It could like electrocute you if you sweat. So you don't sweat while you have that on because you've got electric going around your neck. Just the thought of that makes me sweat. But anyway, say buy, you know, they buy you something, but I always end up paying for it anyway. And uh, that's okay. That's all right. But there is, and you see the analogy of this, don't you? Anything that you give to God, he, he gave to you already. I mean, there's nothing you could give to him that he hasn't already given to you. So when you give a gift to him, yeah, he goes, yeah, I made that. I, I bought that. You're just like the dad, right? The only time that doesn't work that way in our home is when a child does something not from a pocketbook standpoint, but from a heart standpoint, and they tell you something, they write you something, they, they do a piece of artwork, or they do something to describe. So I brought with me a file, and my kids didn't know that I did this, and because uh, I, I don't feel the need to tell my kids everything. My kids, they have to tell me everything, but I don't feel the same need to go the other way. So, um, and some of you right now are texting my kids going, do you know that you're being included in this sermon? And uh, this is a file, and I didn't bring the whole file with me, but there are times my kids gave me things that didn't cost money, but for me are priceless. And this is part of the file. This is just a piece. I didn't want to bring the whole file because it's just too big. But here's a card. Happy birthday. Hope you enjoy your, your day. This is priceless, isn't it? Look at that. Dad is nice. Flip over. I, I, so I flipped. And, and then, oh, the paper. Okay. 
Dear Dad, I love you so, it's, it's got three O's, it's a big so, <laughs> so much. I hope you have a good day. I learned cursive. <laughs> this is priceless, is it not? It's priceless. And so if you want to see these after church, you can't. Because I'm not showing them to you. I don't want you this close. I, can't, I do this on purpose. You're far away. One of my kids then grew up uh, old enough to start to take some art lessons, wrote me a note, which you'll never get to read, but just a beautiful piece of artwork. And this is my favorite. My favorite card. You the man. <laughs> Happy birthday to the best dad in the world. I love you and all the way around. And then this one, this one, this was when Crayola uh, markers, remember the markers smell? And you, I come home from work, and well, why are the kids' noses orange and green? Because you know, the markers were too close, and someone like snorted them. And so, anyway, this, was, this one still smells a bit from the markers. And it says, Crayola Classic Markers. That's what it says. It doesn't say happy birthday, no, I love you. <laughs> Aren't these the best? I only have till three today, so just hang on. I got plenty. Here's, what, here's a poem. I believe a father is someone who offers advice, protects his family, gives guidance, sets the example, makes sure his children follow in the right path. Not bad, huh? And he wrote that when he was two. So <laughs> just telling you, my kid's pretty good. By the way, uh, I can't love my kids anymore than I love them. And I will not love them less. And they're my kids. And there's nothing they could do that would make me love them less. Okay? And I don't know where I got that from. I know it's a bad sentence structure. What's up with that? What? But I, I, can't, I cannot unlove them. It just won't happen. And they'll do things that aggravate me, that stress me out, do me in... Here's a picture of me playing ball with one of them before I gained weight. It was just very... <laughs> so, anyway, I, I cannot love them less. I will not love them less. No matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter what, no, it doesn't matter. Why? Because I'm their dad. And I don't know when that happened. I don't know how, I don't know how it happened. I don't know when it happened. I just know... I mean, they've given me ties and tools and socks that light up with Christmas trees on them. I'm not wearing them. I'm, you know, just not in public. But anyway, but this is priceless. You want this is in the spiritual realm? Anything you give to God, he already gave to you. So you're just giving back what, what, what he already gave to you. But when you give him your words of affirmation, and you talk to him, and you communicate with him. Those are the prayers of the saints. Those are beautiful, are they not? And that's your act, that's called worship. So when we sing, this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. You, we sing that. We, you could just imagine God in heaven. But one year, I tell you this, and we'll move on. I have a daughter who has, I don't know where she got it, a sick sense of humor, but she... Gosh, I have no idea. But, but 
uh, it was years ago, and there was a popular song out, and it was on religious stations, secular stations. It was playing at gas stations and grocery stores, everything. It's Bob Carlyle. When we get to heaven, I'm going to find this guy, and I don't know what I'm going to do to him. But he wrote a song called uh, Butterfly Kisses. I don't know if you remember this song or not. But it's a song about a dad and daughter, and the little girl's growing up. She kissed her dad, and she would, like, blink her eyes, you know, and then that little, little flutter on his cheek, and that'd be the butterfly kiss, see? Then she grows up, and little by little, she starts to date, and eventually she meets the Incredible Hulk, and they, they run away to get married. And right before they go down the aisle, the dad's, you know, he's trying to hold it together, and she leans in and gives him a butterfly kiss. I'm telling you, when I hear that song, I'm sobbing. I can't, couldn't stand it. You know, it was just awful. I'd be driving, <laughs> turn it off, turn it off. And, and my kids would be in the back going, turn it up, turn it up. We love to watch dad cry. And so the next birthday, guess what I got for my birthday? That I paid for. That I paid for. Butterfly stinking kisses. I'm finding Bob Carlyle if he's in heaven. Mm, my gosh. Just made a wet noodle out of me every time I hear this song because it's so, it's just so appropriate that I couldn't, I couldn't stand. But you know what? When you have unmerited favor of God in your life, even when you give something back, he goes, oh yeah, I bought that. I bought that. You know, the only thing you can offer him is your heart, your words of affection, your, your praises, your, you know, this stuff. This is all you can offer him. And when you do that, that is an act of worship to God that I think in heaven he, he weeps a little bit in joy to know that his kids really do love him. Really, do. So when you sing a song, and I'm not, you know, I'm not muscling you down to make sure you sing, and, or I'm not, I'm not muscling you down to say, oh yeah, you need to say the prayers out loud, but when you pray, and when you hear yourself pray, and you, you sing, and I do it in the car, just you have moments. That's why I encourage you every day have a moment with God. Every day. Talk to him honestly. Tell him about your day. Why? Because this grace he has afforded us is unmerited. It is undeserved. It is certainly unearned. You'll never earn your way to heaven. Anything that you, you give back to God is only because he gave it to you first anyway. And, and so that's your act of worship that you love on him. And fourthly, the fourth descriptor is that it's favor. It's, the grace of God is simply one word. Louis Berry's Chafer's theme. It's just favor. It's not by works. No one can boast. I wrote this down and then I took it out of the sermon and put it back in and took it out. The, the reality is this. Get this, if you don't get anything else. God plays favorites. He does. And here's the good news. You're one of them. And when you think about it that way, that he chose you, that he redeemed you through Christ, that he sanctifies you, makes you holy, he puts your feet on straight ground, solid ground, so you can live a life that really matters. I'm telling you, that's incredible. That's amazing grace that he would do that. I want to leave you with one word picture, and then we're going to pray. Uh, it's the story of a father and son, uh, Rick and Dick Hoyt. Rick was born with an umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. 
And you know what that does? It cuts off the oxygen. So when he was born, everything was normal right up till birth. And then at birth, it all went bad. And uh, Dick and Judy decided not to institutionalize their son. They decided to keep him home because they wanted to spend time with him and love on him. So they taught him the alphabet, although this is a kid who cannot move muscles, can't speak, can't take care of himself. He's in a wheelchair and he's in a bed and everything's done with cranks and, and braces. And, but they, they, taught him, they taught him through blinking. They taught him the alphabet. So they figured, this kid's smart. So they keep educating the kid and he, he grows up, but, but he can't communicate like others. And so they, they bring in some engineers in 1973 and you think about the technology back then. They brought in a row of engineers. These engineers went back and built a computer that could then dissect those blinks and to allow him to spell, to work a computer, that he could actually com compute and type messages to them. And he did it with blinking and then bobbing his head on a piece that was like a spacer bar. I mean, you think about this, how long ago this was and how advanced these computers must have been for as long ago as it was. The technology is widely used today, but back then this was cutting-edge stuff. This was at the front end. And by the way, uh, um, little Rick, when he finally was able to spell and could get on that computer, when he typed something out, I thought he would say, uh, hi, Mom, or I, I love you, Mom, or I love you, Dad, or hi, Dad. No. The first words out of his blinking into the computer were, go Bruins. <laughs> the kid's from Boston. And he, he loved the Boston Bruins. And it tells you, here's this little kid who's now growing up, who now he can think and respond, but he's got an attitude. He's got humor. He's got a lot going for himself. Well, when he was 15, um, one of his classmates in school was paralyzed through an accident in plant, while playing lacrosse. And so his class decided they wanted to raise money for their friend, and they wanted to do it by, by doing a, a five-mile run. When Rick got home that night, he tapped a message to his dad. And the message said, I want to run the race. So his dad, who's not a runner, decided, okay, I'll get in shape and I'll, I'll run the race. I'll, I'll push my son in a wheelchair. So his dad got in shape and ran the five-mile run. This is love. This is grace. Is it not? And he ran him through the race. And after that race, his son got home and blinked out another message to his dad that said, today's the first day I didn't feel like a handicap. And so Dick and Judy decided that they would make racing part of their life. And Dick continued to work out. And the last I knew, they have run 72 marathons. Some scholars, some of the reports tell us they've been in a thousand races what I find to be crazy is 255 of them were triathlons, 2.4 miles swimming, 26.2 miles running, 112 miles biking. When Dick swims, he pulls his son in a raft. It's on a tether behind him. It's hooked to his body. So his son's in a raft behind him. When Dick cycles, his son is in a seat out in front of him and when Dick runs, Rick is in a chair with his dad pushing. That is amazing grace. Take a look at this. Who told the ocean you can only come this far? 
pushed along by an ever-loving father, pulled, ridden by a father in heaven who loves you and me. And it's totally by his grace. And anything that you get in life is only by his grace. 
That's what's so amazing about it. And all he's saying to you is, get in the chair. In fact, he's not even saying that. He is saying, let me get you into the chair. He'll even get you into the chair. Let's bow together for prayer and uh, let's stand to our feet as we pray. Would you stand with me? We sing it, Lord, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But as we just do the flyover, we realize how amazing this grace really is. Thank you. With their heads bowed and their eyes closed, I'm just, I, I can't help but be prompted to t- say to you, uh, maybe you've never experienced his saving grace and you would open your heart today to Christ. If you need to pray with somebody, uh, uh, Sadiq and others will be up at the front here to your left uh, and would be considering themselves privileged just to pray for you. But I encourage you to open your heart to the Lord right where you're standing and just tell the Lord, I, I need your grace through Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I want to follow him in faith. Others of us somewhere along the line got cut off in the race and don't finish it well because um, something happened and instead of grace, something else emerged in our lives and it looked something like performance. It looked something like pride, it looked something like arrogance, it looked something like, Lord, we're not exactly sure, but we don't like the looks of it, and we sure don't want the opposition of the Lord in our lives. So, Lord, would you do a work in our hearts now for any arrogant, any waywardness uh, about our own uh, puffed up, announced goodness and greatness of ourselves. So that Jesus Christ would be magnified, the one who is really, truly full of grace and truth, may he be seen in our lives. So Lord, change our hearts to be people of the grace and in the grace and for the grace, always with the grace. May we extend it to others in the way we do business, in our hopes and in our dreams, in the way we talk to each other, in in the way we think about ourselves, Lord, would you change our hearts to see your good hand of grace, your, really your favor, unmerited favor towards us. And I thank you for your word. I thank you for these dear people. We love you because you first loved us. And uh, what, a, what a privileged place that is to be. Thank you. And I pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.